When I was in my 20s and I first moved to New York, I found this book about the history of the city, or a particular period of it, the kind of late 1870s, that just captured my imagination. There's one section in particular that I have always remembered, and it was about a street called the Bloody Angle, Doyer Street in Manhattan. It's in Chinatown, and it was a place where former boxers opened saloons, where gangsters wore chainmail and carried hatchets and had epic battles. It was where Irving Berlin once worked as a singing waiter at a dive bar. After I read the book, I would go out of my way to walk down Doyer Street whenever I was in Chinatown. Because walking down this short little crooked street, I could imagine all the people that had lived there, what their lives had been like. It turned the city into mythology. That book was called Low Life. It's not an exaggeration to say that Low Life was a deep inspiration for the early days of Atlas Obscura. And through Low Life, I could see New York as not a place dominated by the Empire State Building or Times Square, but as a place where every little street, every little building was alive with small, personal, strange, fascinating stories. Just had to take the time to look for them. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. And today on the podcast, it is my true joy to speak with the author of Low Life, Lucy Sant. We will talk to her about what it means to dig into the history of a place and how deep familiarity with a place can change a person. That is all after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide-open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites— along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Now playing in Los Angeles. Exquisite food and drink, world-class art everywhere, spectacular sports, and dazzling Hollywood attractions. L.A. offers the full variety of food scene, from game-changing taco trucks to 35 Michelin stars. And did you know that Los Angeles has more museums and theaters than New York? It is indeed scandalous, but also unfortunately true. So get your fix in music, film, comedy, or world-class museums in L.A. Plus, you can get a behind-the-scenes movie magic with a world-famous studio tour. That is something that should be on everybody's bucket list. Start here with discoverla.com. Do you remember writing about Doyer Street or the Bloody Angle sure. in, in mm-hmm. Low Life? Yeah. 
It's fun. I would go out of my way. Recently, I got to meet up with Lucy Sant in my backyard. We both are based in upstate New York. So you actually will hear a rainstorm at one point while we're talking. We talked a lot about her writing on specifically cities and places, about New York, about Paris. We also talked about a big thing that has happened in her life more recently, which is her gender transition. The conversation began with Lucy's childhood. She was born in Belgium in 1954 in a working-class city called Verviers. I was born in a city, mm. and it's a pretty sad city now, but um, it was pretty lively when I was a kid. And um, Verviers, Verviers. Right? Yeah. How do I say it? Verviers. 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 Uh, you know, 20 kilometers from the German border in the southeast Belgium. No tourist has ever been there in yeah. the history of the world. <laughs> um, but... Um, you know, so you had a, a city in miniature, the red brick. I mean, I kept seeing my city replicated in places like yeah. New York, yeah. for example, especially the Lower East Side. Yeah. There was something about that kind of crumbling working class environment that spoke to me from way back. In Belgium, you know, I'm often like telling people, you know, we did not have central heating or hot running water or refrigerator or, you know, television or a record player. And uh, my mother was a ultra, ultra Catholic and was so afraid of my being corrupted that she wouldn't let me see a movie until I was like eight, mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. nine. Yeah. In the late 1950s, Sant's family moved back and forth a couple of times between the U.S. and Belgium. The first time around, they spent six months in New Jersey. And on their last day, her parents decided to visit New York City. She was only five at the time. And it happened to be Halloween. And it was our, you know, farewell trip. And um, Halloween in those days meant hundreds and hundreds of unaccompanied minors running through the streets wearing, like, bed sheets. It was (laughs) just pandemonium, feast of misrule, and I wanted to be in there. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I I can really picture the scene. But Um, then the family moved back to New Jersey for good. Well... We were very isolated. I'm an only child, so my parents became my entire family. My father worked rotating shifts at a factory, and my mother eventually went to work too. Um, And my mother, uh, not only, I mean, you know, 30 years later, she still didn't have full command of the English language. She'd grown up as literally a peasant and uh, was very uneducated. Both my parents left school at 13. So I was dumped into school without knowing a word of English, but I learned quickly. And very soon, I was not really able to communicate with my parents very well. Um, But I was also a foreigner to the Americans, so I was all by myself. Yeah. When did you first land in kind of the Lower East Side and sort of start to have a kind of like cultural experience of New York? I got a scholarship to an all-boys Catholic school in the Upper East Side, and I commuted every day from New Jersey, two hours each way. I was obsessed with New York immediately. I I wandered and wandered. And it it led to my being kicked out of high school in the middle of junior year because, uh, well, A, I didn't understand algebra at all, and I never did. (laughs) Um, And the other was that I was taking Homeric Greek. Homeric Greek was just memorization. And, you know, I couldn't do that. I was wandering around. I was going to movies. I started taking drugs. I would go to the Fillmore. I was yeah. not memorizing a page of parsings of the Odyssey every night. So I failed that, too. And I got kicked back to um, public school in New Jersey. 
And then I got a full scholarship to Columbia. That was 1972. And I was in New York City for the next 28 years. Yeah. You've, you've written really nicely about how sort of the geography of the Lower East Side, which you went back to again, um, made a sort of a kind of a possibility that you would like you could bump into people. You could have this sense of small community and, and, and of fellowship and of adventures became possible. Can you sort of talk about that period and of, of kind of uh, the people you met. And that, I love that sense of kind of the intimate geography of a neighborhood. Well, my uh, my college friends and I all moved downtown in 1978. And then over the next like four years, um, it just mushroomed. And by 1982-83, I could not leave the house to buy milk without bumping into 15 people. You know, I mean, I had a real sense that we were all interconnected. And, you know, we didn't have phones, and the public phones were busted most of the time. Yeah. So the way that you socialized was by meeting people at, you know, a bar um, or a restaurant, you know, the, and, or just knocking on their door. Yeah. And um, that was, you know, that's still like my baseline model of what a community is. Yeah. You know, is yeah. that everybody's kind of nearby and available. So, you know, you're, you're, you're in New York experiencing what I think a lot of people consider to be one of the most interesting periods in the city. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, I wouldn't disagree at all. It's this kind of explosive moment. Yeah, the art. 70s were really the peak. But when you wrote your first book, you decided to write not about that period, but to kind of cast back 150 years earlier uh, into, into the kind of early period. I'm interested about why you sort of wanted to explore the past of New York rather than this moment that you had been a part of? Well, in 86, I was approached by these publishers who said, who had been recommended to me. They'd read my work in the New York Review of Books, and they yeah. said, we want you to write a book. What do you want to write a book about? I was also working, I was writing for a long-defunct, small, local business magazine called Manhattan Inc., for whom I did, like, all the dog and pony stories, you know, the... Um, you know, the umbrella shop, uh, the dog rumors. In fact, I was like profiling shopkeepers and stuff. And um, they decided me to do a piece about the then phenomenon of exploding manhole covers. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I went and researched this, and I f- found myself in the, um, the Society Library on the Upper East Side, which is an amazing place, the yeah. New York Society Library. I mean, this, this is a place where literally, at least then, maybe that's changed, you could find first editions of Herman Melville, like on the open shelves. Yeah. Um, and I was down in the basement in their New York history section, and it blew my mind. First-person accounts of the draft riots, things like this. And so... And that was fresh in my mind when they said, what do you want to write a book about? And yeah. I blurted out, I want to write a history of the slums. Because, you know, these tenement buildings, I look at them and they're, you know, terracotta decorations and embellishments and, you know, the 19th century. I was living in a f- fragment of the 19th century. Yeah. In the, and, you know, it seemed like... I don't know, it seemed like a subject that transported me more than writing about the very recent past, which is too recent for me to really write about in any straight way. Um, So that, after five years, became low life. And this is all exactly 
why lowlife seized my imagination. More than that, it seized on this thing that I knew to be true, which is that every corner of the city had something to tell you. It had some story to share. The story of the molasses gang who went around asking shopkeeps to fill up their bowler hats with molasses because it was a bet and then would put it on their head quick and rob the store. Basically like weird prankster gang from the 1870s. I felt transported by all of this history I was living inside of. A lot of Lucy's work is about New York City, both in the 1800s and the much more recent history. But she's also turned her attention towards other cities she loves, like Paris. Her 2015 book, The Other Paris, is a history, like lowlife, of the bohemians, eccentrics, criminals, and outcasts of Paris. Sant lived briefly in Paris as a child, and I asked her what drew her back to that place. Well, first of all, it's my other language, you know, which yeah. is my other half. I yeah. mean, it's, um, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in Paris just recently spending weeks at a time not speaking any English. There's a way in which I feel at home there that's very specific and different from the way I feel at home in New York or other English-speaking environments. Um, you know, when I went to Paris when I was 20, I remember thinking that, you know, if if there'd just been a little turn in my life, if it worked out when we moved back to Belgium in 1960, um, I might have done my studies in Paris and be looking forward to a term in New York, which I'd only brief, glimpse briefly as a child, mm. you know? Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's my parallel life. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, the other, the other path, the other half. Yeah, yeah that's really interesting. So much of your work is about this deeply layered past of places, of people, and recently you sort of excavated yourself like this. You found in the archives this well, well hidden, you know, sort of set of, of of documents that you'd been kind of maybe peeking at for years. You know, do you want to talk about sort of your your arrival at, at Lucy, at, at your transition? Sure. Well, I mean, I you know, I've known in some fashion that I was transgender since I was in single digits. Yeah. Um, but I didn't, I was terrified of it, didn't want to be that. Yeah. Um, I repressed it, I denied it, I tried to obliterate it, but I also lived with it every day for yeah. like 60 years. And, um, and I thought I was going to take it to my grave. Um, and then in a way that I will never really understand, it was uh, the app called FaceApp. And I hear that it's actually a popular gateway for you know, many, many people. But, I mean, the, what I did was started feeding into FaceApp every picture of myself beginning at about age 12. And I realized, oh, yeah, that could have been my life or that was my life in a way, my shadow life. Yeah. And um, But this, the part I don't understand is how that led to this imperative and this momentum uh, that took me over. Yeah. Um, I'm back down to earth now and with all the attendant worries and fears, but, <laughs> yeah. um, but for over a year, I was on the slipstream. Um, and, um, you know, it was a force bigger than my conscious mind. So yeah. I don't know how better to say it than that. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, and I did in fact discover that um, I scattered breadcrumbs throughout my life um, 
You know, I thought I'd obliterated everything, but I hadn't managed to obliterate the stuff that was purely unconscious, for example. I guess I would like to express a personal thank you for your work. There's something about the way you write about places, the way you mythologize and raise up people and cities, even in their kind of, you know, the, the harshest aspects of them, uh, that like is sort of how I want to see the world, you know? It is sort of that, that depth of understanding, the kind of grandness of every place and every person really at the at their root is like I think you just capture it so uh, beautifully, and I'm I'm really thankful for your work. Thank you. Lucy Sant's latest book is 19 Reservoirs about the reservoir system in upstate New York. You can find more information about that book and the rest of Lucy's incredible writing at lucysant.com. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. This episode was produced by Amanda McGowan. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder Arnold, Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire Seuss, Gianna Palmer, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com there is a link in the episode description. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.